0: since the very beginning at faith community we've called our sunday gathering sunday celebration like many of you i grew up in church and growing up in church we called our weekly weekend gathering the worship service in fact uh, in fact we we had a bulletin do you remember bulletins does anybody remember what was at the top of the inside page of your bulletin, especially if you are, and this is, uh, this is just for a certain few, especially if you grew up in a Baptist church? It probably said, anybody remember? I'll give you the first two words, order of service or worship, yep, yep, order of service or order of worship. So what is worship? Worship should be a pretty easy idea to get our minds and hearts around because we do it all the time. To worship something is to recognize someone or something's worth. That's what it really means to worship. So let's dig a little deeper. It's to recognize something's worth or value To worship someone is to recognize someone's worth or someone's value, and the interesting thing about human beings is that we have always been worshipers. All human beings are worshipers. From the very beginning of time, whenever people got together or families got together or tribes got together, they just instinctively looked up. And they knew there was something out there somewhere that had power over or actually influenced what was happening around them. So consequently, in ancient times, people believed in a multitude of gods, and they looked to the gods, small g as they valued the as they as they looked to them, they valued them because they believed this: that if it weren't for their gods, they wouldn't survive. They looked to the gods to send them the rain when they needed it. They looked to the gods for victory in battle. They looked to the gods to make sure that their children were born healthy. They were always trying to figure out the magic combination of how do you get the gods to play along. So as a result, over time, worship for ancient peoples revolved around the idea of sacrifice. They made a connection between giving up something of value... And it often involved the spilling of blood and the getting the attention of their gods. And the more valuable the blood, the more value they thought they were expressing for their god. So therefore, in some cultures, they would go so far as to sacrifice people. They would sacrifice their enemies. They would even sacrifice people of their own tribe. And then if they really wanted to get the god's attention... They would sacrifice a child. Sometimes they would even sacrifice their own child. And all of this was an effort to gain the favor and undivided attention and the blessing of the gods. You see, they wanted to keep the gods happy. There was this constant guessing game of what in the world do we need to do on our end to get the gods to recognize us and to bless us. But figuring that out was very tricky and something that consumed them. Figuring out exactly what the gods required was virtually impossible. Now for ancient people, there were always people who claimed to know the secrets to getting the gods to do what they wanted the gods to do. There were priests, and there were witch doctors, and there were spiritual leaders, and They would convince the tribes, they would convince the nation, they would convince the king. And they would say, hey, I know the minds of the gods, and if you will listen to me, I can get the gods to bless you and to favor you. Now here's what you need to do to make the gods happy. And these people had quite a lot of influence. The interesting thing about this system was there was always a parallel between making the gods happy and keeping the priest or the spiritual leaders happy. So at the end of the day, it seemed to always come back in the direction of the person standing up front. This isn't a new phenomenon. This has been going on since the beginning of time. There was always a sacred person, often with some sort of sacred text or secret or some sort of something that was sacred, and often they would manipulate the people in order to get the favor of the gods. Now, we turn to ancient Jewish worship. It was a little bit different. It was similar in some ways, but actually very different in others. It was similar in in terms of the fact that they included animal sacrifice, but why they sacrificed animals was very different from why the nations around Israel made sacrifices. Sacrifice for the ancient Jews was not a bribe, for ancient Jews were not trying to bribe their God. They knew him as Yahweh. They weren't trying to bribe Yahweh into doing something for them because they had something that the surrounding nations did not have. And this is so important for where we are going this morning. They had an agreement. They had a covenant with their God. A covenant that God had actually initiated with the nation, starting with Abraham and continuing, of course, with Moses. God essentially said, and this you find in Deuteronomy chapter 28, because Deuteronomy 28 is sort of the hinge that helps explain God's relationship with the nation of Israel. And God said this to them, you are my people, you don't have to bribe me, you're already in I am with you, but I am going to give you a written law so that you know how to treat each other. The written law wasn't a way to get in good with God. The law was given to the nation so they would know how to behave. This is so important, so so that they would know how to behave in the land, listen, that God was going to give them. So God said, here's the plan. Before you go into your land, we're going to call it the promised land, here is how you are to behave in that land. And if you misbehave, you'll still be my people, but I will drive you out of that land. Now the interesting thing was the law that God established with Israel, it was way, way far ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. Anyone that is critical of the Sinai covenant between God and ancient Israel just doesn't know what was going on in the world around them at that time. It was brilliant. And it actually taught the ancient Jewish people, they were known as Hebrews then, it taught them how to treat each other, how to treat foreigners, how to treat their neighbors, their, even their enemies, and how to treat their servants. And one of the things the law said was that they could make animal sacrifices, but they couldn't sacrifice people. And you and I reply, uh, does that really need to be written into a law? Doesn't that go without saying? No, believe it or not, this set them apart from all the surrounding nations. And it was this law, it was the moral code that really set them apart. And ultimately, it changed the way that these ancient people approached worship because Israel's God was more concerned with obedience than with sacrifice. But for all the pagan nations and all the surrounding nations and all the peoples' uh, groups around Israel, it was all about sacrificing to the gods in order to get the gods' attention and to uh, merit God's favor. Nobody thought that these pagan gods actually cared how you treated your wife or your husband or your kids or a foreigner or a stranger or even a slave. They didn't care. Because the pagan gods were just about bribing them to make sure you got what you wanted, to make sure it rained and the crops came in, and you were victorious in battle, and your children were all healthy, and in reality it was about enriching the profits of the pagan gods. But the Jewish god, Yahweh, was different. He was less concerned with the sacrifice because he could not and would not be bribed. He was more concerned with how the Hebrew people treated each other. In fact, one of the prophets of Israel, Samuel, said this, to obey, in other words, to do what is right, is better than sacrifice. It was as if God was saying, look, you can sacrifice to me all day long. I'm not that impressed, I I want you to keep my law. You can sacrifice to me all day and all night. You can slaughter half the herd, half the sheep in Israel, any animals that you want to bring. But if you're disobedient, I'm going to send you out of the land because I am more concerned about how you behave than what you sacrificed to me. This was so different, so, so different than anything else. Anything that had happened in all of history up to that point doesn't compare to this. At the dedication of the great temple, which is kind of the pinnacle as far as worship experience in the Old Testament, King Solomon spoke these words. He said this in 1 Kings chapter 8, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants. Now, none of the surrounding nations approached their gods this way. <laughs> because you see, Israel's approach to worship, which was built around this sacrifice system, wasn't designed to keep God happy. It was about reminding them who they were in relationship to God. He was worthy of their devotion. He was worthy of their, de- their obedience. And they stood in need of redemption. And so Israel's sacrificial system revolved around atonement for sin. And this set them apart from all the surrounding nations. Because atonement was about making reconciliation. That is, bringing two parties together and making peace between those two parties. The Hebrew word actually means to cover, To cover something. So, atonement in ancient times in the Jewish festivals and in the Jewish religion was to cover sin, to cover something bad with something good in order to restore a relationship. So, a big part of Jewish worship, it wasn't to bribe God, and it wasn't about getting God to do anything, it was to reconcile with God, who had already made an unconditional covenant with this nation. And it was a way to bring reconciliation between people who had wronged each other because Yahweh was very concerned with how people treated each other. That's why day after day and year after year, individual Jews would cover their sins by making a costly animal sacrifice or even a grain offering at the temple, or sometimes it was somewhere else, and they had to make restitution to the person that they had sinned against. And also, throughout the year, Jews offered sacrifices to atone for personal sin, but then beyond that, something really unique would happen. Once a year, Jews would gather from all over the nation, and in some cases, all over the known world, and they would come to Jerusalem And they would celebrate what was called the Day of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. That'll be on your calendar. That'll be September 25th this year. And while throughout the year Jewish people would make atonement for their personal sin, once a year the nation would gather in this great festival and they would celebrate the Day of Atonement where as a nation, they would repent of their sin and they would ask God to cover the sin of the nation. By the way, it's considered to be the holiest day of the year in Judaism. And as part of this festival, something very powerful would happen. At one point in the festival, the high priest will place both of his hands on the head of a goat. And this was symbolically a way of saying, I am now placing all the sin of the nation of Israel on this goat. And then someone would be assigned to lead that goat down the southern stairs, off the Temple Mount, into the valley, through the streets, through the village, outside the gate, through the people who are living outside the walls, and then they would lead that goat into the wilderness, and there, abandon it. And this was symbolically saying that God has taken our sin and removed our sin as a nation and taken it to the wilderness and we are now sinless as a nation for now. And the following year, they would repeat the whole thing again. And year after that, again. And the year after that, again. Up to the year 2022... Again, back in October. So Jewish wor- worship was essentially a temporary fix for a problem that required an ultimate solution. While at the same time, Jewish worship pointed to what God was up to in the world, and this is the thing that a lot of them missed. Jewish worship pointed to the time when God would bring the ultimate solution to to our ultimate problem. From pagan worship and rituals where they sacrificed to get the attention of their gods and to get the blessing of their god or gods, the Lord God himself, Yahweh, chose a nation. And he spoke in terms that the world at that time could understand that there is a God who desires sacrifice and who desires devotion And much, much more than that, he desires obedience. Here is how I want you to behave. And here is how I want you to behave toward each other. And if you offend me by offending someone I love, not only will you have to make atonement for your sin against me, but also you'll have to make restitution to your brothers and your sisters. This isn't forgiveness. This is temporary covering. And so, year after year after year after year, Jews would make their pilgrimage to the temple to make atonement for their sin. And then once a year, they would gather as a nation to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And then And then something extraordinary happened.
1: One afternoon around the year 30 A.D., a man comes seemingly out of uh, nowhere. Uh, The gospel writer Matthew says he came out of the wilderness and he spoke in terms that sounded like a prophet, but he looked like someone you would not want to invite over for dinner. His message was very, very simple. He said God is about to do something new. He's about to do something new in the world. God is about to fulfill what he's promised to our nation and through so many prophets over so many years. And if you aren't ready, you're going to miss it. So he began to preach this message of repentance. And he's preaching this message all over the Jordan River Valley. His name was John, but John was a very common name. So if you were named John, you came to be known by your surname or like a nickname or a title. So this John got a nickname that kind of became a title. And we know him as John the Baptizer. And here's why. Because he baptized people. It's pretty creative, really, because this this is what he did. He would actually invite people into the Jordan River, and he would say to them, are you ready to repent of your sin and to be cleansed from your sin? Are you ready to identify with this brand new thing that God is about to do in our midst? And if you are willing to publicly identify with what God is about to do in the world, then come into the water with me. And he would actually baptize people. Now, Many Jews at the time had heard of Gentiles being baptized before, because if you were a Gentile at that time and wanted to become Jewish by faith, to adopt the Jewish faith as your own, there was a ceremony you had to go through. It included a meal. Uh, there was a ceremonially, ceremonial washing that you would, where you would cleanse yourself of your Gentileness, I guess, because you weren't born a Hebrew. This had become a pretty common practice, but it had always been something that you did on your own. It was a ceremonial cleansing, but they'd never seen anyone take someone and baptize them, like to literally dip them, immerse them in water. But that's what John started to do. And John the baptizer was gritty and he was unpolished and he was loud. And he says, God is up to something new. That was his message, and he's creating this stir all over Judea, and thousands of people from Judea, and actually from Galilee, and from the city of Jerusalem, and thousands of people would come from all over to hear John and to see him, this spectacle, because something was up, and they wanted in on what was happening, and even the Jewish leaders, the temple leaders, by this time, the temple was so corrupt uh, that Jesus never, if you'll notice, he never said anything positive about the temple and about the religious leaders. The temple leaders sent some people down to talk to John. And when he finally got through the crowd, they're like, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Because we've been looking for the Messiah for a long, long time now. Are you claiming to be the Messiah? And he looks at them and he says, no, no, I'm not. But get ready. Like, you better be ready. Because when he shows up, like, I'm going to be so far from being worthy to be in his presence. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. So get ready. But something new is coming. And eventually the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all these religious leaders from the city of Jerusalem, they decided to get, they just wanted to get in on the action, and so they, they went to hear John themselves. So they made their way through the crowd, and when John saw them, uh, they, they looked at the expression on his face, and I think at that point they knew they had made a big mistake. Because <laughs> John the Baptist, knowing he was literally risking his life, pointed at the most honored, the most powerful, the most feared people in that culture. And he looked them in the face and said, you're a bunch of vipers. And the crowd went quiet. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Don't come down here, in other words, and tell me what you're going to do. Don't come down here and try to identify with this new thing that God is going to do. You got to be willing to live it out. And if you're not serious, like, don't bother coming down here and interrupting me. So, like, everybody, all the way uh, from the common person to the religious leaders, came out to hear John. And he's preparing the way. And when God had everything just the way he wanted when everybody was leaning in and paying attention, when everybody was kind of riled up just enough to notice that there was something happening, one afternoon, one of the most dramatic scenes in all of history unfolds. John stops what he's doing. And he looks up at the hill behind the crowd and he pauses and he sees something they don't see. And he says, look, look, at last, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God has provided, the Lamb that comes from God who has come to take upon himself, listen, to carry away once and for all, not the sins of the nation, but the sin of the whole world. World. Look, the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem is here. The ultimate fix to our pathetic, sinful, can't-get-it-right, won't-even-keep-our-own-standards kind of condition. Look, the final sacrifice for sin, everything we have lived for and longed for, is about to culminate in that one person. Years later, the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament Uh, we don't know who the author was, but we do know it was written to Jewish people, said this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. He said, The law, the entire law that God gave to the nation through Moses, the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, So the sacrificial system where we kept killing animals year after year after year and on the Day of Atonement, right? For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, you could get this sacrificial system right every single time for your entire family. We could do it as an entire nation, get it perfectly right, but it's not enough. The sacrifices were a reminder. The sacrifices were a reminder of our sin condition, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Cover sin? Yes. Cover temporarily? Yes. Take away sin? No. Until John said, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who's come to take upon himself and carry away once and for all Remember that picture of the goat being left in the wilderness? This is the real deal. Once and for all to carry away the sin of the whole world. He came to replace and fulfill this entire sacrificial system. So it's pointing to the ultimate solution, to our ultimate problem, our sin and our separation from holy God, who desired to have a relationship with us, but something had to be done about the sin. Sin would no longer be atoned for, it would no longer be covered up, sin would be forgiven once and for all. Later, the Apostle Paul would write this, and Apostle John would write this in 1 John. He says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In an unprecedented reversal, nobody saw this coming. There was nothing to prepare people for what was about to happen. In an unprecedented reversal, God would sacrifice on behalf of the human race. Like for thousands of years, humans had been sacrificing in order to get attention and the blessing of their gods. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been sacrificing in order to make atonement for sin. And now in this massive reversal, God would now make the sacrifice and he would sacrifice himself on your behalf and my behalf. And instead of demanding something, Through Jesus, he would offer something. He would offer peace. He would offer reconciliation. He would make it so that you and I, fallen, sinful people, could live in relationship with a holy, righteous God. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors, made this statement in one of his books. He said, God took a big risk. God took a big risk by announcing forgiveness ahead of time. He took a big risk when he communicated to you and to me, when he communicated from generation to generation all the way to human beings living right now, when he said, I'm announcing forgiveness ahead of time. So like before we ever breathe our first breath, before we ever commit our first sinful act, God has provided a way of forgiveness. God took a big risk announcing forgiveness ahead of time, That that's exactly what he did. I love that. In the course of one afternoon, when Jesus died on the cross... Worship changed forever. It would no longer involve a sacrifice to appease the gods or to appease Yahweh God. It wouldn't be a sacrifice to atone for sin. Everything changed because now worship would be a time to pause, to remember, to remember the sacrifice that had already been made on our behalf. Like we don't gather to call God down. We gather because God already came down. And so our worship is a time of celebration it should be emotional, like it should connect with you emotionally, like on a heart level. It's why we sing songs, because music has a power to do that and to connect with humans on that level. It's why people write lyrics that say over and over in fresh and new and modern ways what the church has been singing and celebrating from the very beginning. It's why we sing, it's why we celebrate and we gather together on the first day of every week. We celebrate on Sunday because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection is what punctuated and validated all of his claims. Like if somebody, if you're wondering, can I trust this person? If they predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, then yes, you can trust them, right? And Jesus predicted his own death, that's one thing. But he predicted his own resurrection and then he was seen. So we accept his interpretation of life, we accept his way of being human, we accept his interpretation of the significance of his death and then his resurrection punctuated all of that. So like when we gather, either in person or online as some are today, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead which means everything he said, everything he lived out is true. What he taught us about God is true. What he taught us about eternal life is true. What he taught us about loving each other is true. What he taught us about life in his kingdom, in the here and now, is true. So here's the deal. Christian worship doesn't end when the worship service ends. Christian worship doesn't end when this gathering breaks up and everybody goes off to lunch or goes home or when you turn your computer off. Jesus' sacrifice for us should inform all of our decisions every single day. Like that is we live with the celebration and the remembrance that's associated with the life and teachings and examples of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul, who by the way was a Pharisee, like that means he got it right every time. (laughs) Then he became a follower of Jesus and he saw the whole thing differently. And he wrote in his letter to the Christians living in first century Rome, he made this extraordinary statement about the way that we're to worship as Christians. He said, therefore, so in light of everything that he's written so far, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, like in light of the fact of what God has already done for you, like you don't have to do any more, no more sacrifices, no more rituals, no more ceremonial observances. I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, Your bodies, your relationships, your money, your time, your everything as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Like that is how Christians worship. We gather in person. We gather online to pause, to remember, to gather or to celebrate. That's why we gather. And then after we gather, we go. You're like, speaking of that, isn't it about time? Almost. We go. (laughs) Dinner will be fine. We go reflecting the light. Reflecting the light that has come into our lives in the person of Jesus. And we live in such a way that our lives reflect the extraordinary gift that God has given us in Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about as presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. In light of God's sacrifice, we offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. It's the logical, reasonable thing to do. Then in addition to celebrating, in addition to remembering, we submit. Like, God submitted himself to us by sending his son. Jesus submitted himself to us through his death on the cross. Why would we not submit? To Him in return. Because after all, God is for us. So how would I not be for God in my daily living? In all of my relationships, in all of my priorities, in all of my values, in all of my decisions, in the way that I interact and treat with others every day in all of our ways. Let's live our lives in such a way that our lives reflect the extraordinary, extraordinary gift that God had gave us when He sent His Son. As John the Baptizer said, look, the Lamb of God who comes to pick up and carry away all of your sin, all of mine, who takes away the sin of the whole world. We think we'd be missing an opportunity this morning if we didn't give you a chance to have a moment in time when you entered into a relationship with your Heavenly Father to experience grace and forgiveness and purpose and joy and peace. Maybe you've been coming here for a while. You find yourself starting to understand things maybe that you never understood before and you're beginning to realize, you know, it's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus did for me. Maybe you haven't been here since Christmas or maybe since last Easter, but today maybe you find yourself ready to embrace the truth of God who came to carry away our sin to change the way that we approach Him and begin to experience this rich and satisfying life that Jesus offers. If that's where you find yourself this morning, we want to give you a chance to just have a moment where you can place your faith in the God who pursues us, the God who came to earth as one of us, to place all your trust in Christ's death on the cross as payment for your sin. So I want to lead you in a prayer. This prayer doesn't make you a Christian. Prayer is just a way that we express our decision to put our faith in christ i want to lead you in a prayer right now so would you just join me if you're comfortable just bow your heads with me you can pray this with me silently right where you are you can change the words you can use your own words and if you're if you want to engage in this with me you could actually watch on the screen that'd be okay too pray something like this lord i believe that i need a savior i believe that jesus came to be my savior i believe that when he died he died for my sin I believe that I can have a right standing with you through what he did. I'm not trusting in my efforts. I'm not trusting in my church involvement. I'm not trusting in any religious ritual. I'm putting all of my faith in who Jesus is and what he did on my behalf. So thank you for coming to earth in the person of Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. I accept your gift of rich and satisfying and eternal life. In Jesus' name. Now listen. If you prayed that prayer or something like that, with, you're at that point of a spiritual decision, we'd love for you to take a minute and fill out a Connect card that's in a seat back near you. You can leave it in the little box by the door as you leave today. Um, we'll pick that up later. Uh, or better yet, Come bring it to someone on our prayer team, and they'll be in the prayer space there at the back of the room on that side over there. Uh, they'll be back there for the rest of the service and for a little bit after the service ends as well. We'd love to have a minute uh, to talk with you. We've been talking about worship this morning. We said that worship is so much more than coming to church and going through some religious traditions and praying and singing. It's more than that. But, oh, but listen, it does include that, and I'm glad it does. Like, we wouldn't bother gathering every Sunday morning if this wasn't an act of worship, We believe everything we do here can and should be an act of worship. So we're going to sing, as we do every Sunday. And our prayer is that we would come together with all of our backgrounds, all of our stories, all of our hurts, all of our hang-ups, that we would come together with one voice to worship God through our music. Listen to these verses from the Old Testament, and then we're going to sing. Deuteronomy 3, these are the words of Moses. He says, Sovereign Lord, you have shown your servant your greatness and your strong hand. What God is there in heaven or on earth that can do the mighty works you do? And the psalmist David in Psalm 30, you have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you. O Lord my God, I will sing thanks forever.